Hey there, dear listeners. Welcome to the first ever episode of The Beauty of Horror Rewind. Why Rewind? What's going on? Well, for those of you who might be a bit new to listening to the podcast, you may have noticed that there's only Season 2 available on my feed. The reason for this is that the initial run of The Beauty of Horror was in around July of 2021. I had signed up for a sort of mentorship program through Anatomy of Scream's Pod Squad Network. And through that, I was able to put everything together that I have now to run the beauty of horror as you know it today. That very first season that I did for them was on their feet, Anatomy of a Scream. And it was a testing grounds to see how the podcasts that they pick up do and what they can do with that. I found it to be an amazing program. And as such, I have kept the episodes on there for a while. You know, relatively speaking, I know it hasn't been a super long time, but since I, you know, I'm going to be candid with you all here, since I have had some scheduling issues for myself, since I've been here in the United States for a time, it's just been a little tough for me to kind of juggle everything and get everything going, especially with time differences at work, dealing with trying to understand the household a little bit better and get used to the time scheduling around here as well, which is my own doing. I need to get, just make my time schedules and kind of get used to them, but I'm still adjusting. It means I'm still adjusting a bit with podcasting. We've also had some technical issues with recording a couple of episodes. So I wanted to make sure that we didn't have any dead air the way I did when I was on vacation. And I have reached out and I asked Joe Lipset, who was my mentor from Anatomy of a Scream. You would also know him from Horror Queers. And he was on episode one of season two. I asked him if it would be okay for me to present to you all some older editions of this show. So you can kind of hear how it all started and compare it to how it sounds now. So the format was exactly the same. The whole season was just based on beauty. But now if I have a bit of a gap and I need to fill it in, instead of giving you dead air, you can expect a rewind episode. There are only a few episodes from that first season, so there will be a finite amount of episodes. How many? We're going to find out as we go. But this first episode is episode one, season one. Very special one for me, too, because it was with my dear friend, someone who's become a dear friend for me, at least over time, and that is Danny Bethay. I have always enjoyed talking with them and chatting with them through Twitter. They've always been super kind to me, and they were the first person that I reached out to when I knew that I wanted to have guests on this podcast. So they immediately asked, hey, can we do a double feature? And I said, sure. I wasn't really planning much, so I didn't really know how I wanted to format everything. And I figured if I was going to do a double feature with anybody, it was going to be Danny Bethay. The Danny Bethay. I mean, come on. So we did a double feature on my favorite film director, I think even their favorite film director, listen to the episode and find out, Guillermo del Toro. Two of my favorite films, Pan's Labyrinth, which is still to this day my favorite film since I've seen it, and The Devil's Backbone. We coupled them together, not just because they are kind of spiritual successors to each other, but also because they share a lot of themes, which I guess goes with being spiritual sequels to each other. But I think it's more the fact that they both explore childhood in a very similar but vastly different way. So we were both really excited to do this. You could probably tell in the episode, I was a little shaky. I was very nervous. I had already been a bit of a fan of Danny up until this point. Just to give you some context, that's how these rewinds are going to work. I'm going to tell you a little bit how I was feeling when I was making the episodes. And I was just super excited to out the gate talk about my favorite film director. So yeah, I, I, was, I was still trying to figure everything out, and I'm sure you can hear it in the episode, but 
some of the themes that we talk about in this episode. We talk about childhood, but the whimsy and, and magic of being a child, but also the dangers that you go through for being a child. You know, the things that you're a bit too naive to understand. The use of fairy tales and ghost stories as a framing device within Del Toro's work. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about aesthetics. So we're talking color palettes that are used, different shots that are used, ways that Del Toro conveys different emotions with image versus telling you things. I was really excited before making this, and I was even more excited after making this. So Danny, if you're listening to this, I mean this with no hyperbole, but this episode is what really inspired me to keep going. And when I knew that I had something that I wanted to continue to do and that was going to last with me for a long time. And thank you so much, Danny, for being that first guest and for maintaining our friendship and our kind of work relationship as well. It's been a pleasure working with you and knowing you and here's to many more. So for those who are new to this or who are new to this episode, enjoy episode one, season one. Welcome, everybody. Today is a very exciting episode of The Beauty of Horror because it's the very first time that I ever get to say the following. It's the inaugural episode of The Beauty of Horror. Here we go. The Beauty of Horror is a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock. And today's guest is the editor-in-chief of We Are Horror, a contributing writer for Ghoulish Media, Rely on Horror, and the recently launched Ghouls Magazine. Beautiful welcomes to Danny Bethay. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be on the inaugural launch of the podcast. Hello out there. Super, super excited to have you on. I'm, I could not be more delighted to have such a uh, prominent figure in the horror scene to start this off. And... For anybody who knows Danny's writing and, and knows the kind of work that they put out, uh, you would know that you're a shoehorn for talking about emotions, aesthetics, beauty. So can't wait to dive into our uh, films today. Uh, but before we begin our discussion, I would like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic. This can be from philosophy or from the filmmakers themselves. Now, today's quote is quite simple. It is, there is beauty and humility in imperfection. Now, I'll reveal who said this a little later on. First, uh, Danny, let's talk a bit about your relationship with horror. What is it that draws you to the genre? Well, for me personally, it's all of the different ways that you can find some kind of cathartic release out of it. Whether, you know, it's the revenge horror, it's it's the... Um, horror that has, you know, some kind of socio-political element to it. I mean, there's even like the horror films, you know, where you can just kind of turn your brain off. Like the genre is, is literally limitless. Like there's like no limits on the genre, like all of the rules that, you know, may be applicable to other film genres just aren't 
you know, just aren't there with horror. So you can kind of do what you want. You can, you can, you know, kind of throw anything at the wall to see what sticks. Like you can, you know, kind of just let go in the genre. It's like one of those rare pieces of media where it's like, oh no, there's no rules here. I mean, like some rules, sure. I mean, it kind of depends on the, the world and the canon and everything else, but like, it's, it's just so, so freeing. It's like that piece of um, kind of pop culture media, like comic books or video games where you can just like have fun. I totally agree with that. The, the, the fun element of it is very important for a lot of us, I'd say, because it's mm-hmm. something that we can lean on to escape. But as you're also pointing out, the other elements of it, the, the sociopolitical elements of it, the uh, art house elements that can come into horror as well, can be done in an equally satisfying way. And in a way that just, as you've already pointed out, it's limitless in the scope of your imagination is the scope of the stories that you can create within the horror genre. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very nice. So what have you been up to lately? Have you watched anything in particular recently that you might want to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) This is funny. I don't, I don't know when this uh, is going to come out or debut, but um, it is currently, uh, almost the end of April, but the main horror thing that it's just been the buzz of April has been Amazon's them. Mm-hmm. And Oh my goodness. It has like, <laughs> it's kind of been like this torrential tidal wave of non horror newcomers, people who have been in the horror, uh, you know, medium writing about it or producing it for a long time, trying to educate people people who are a mixture of both and their thoughts and feelings on it. But yeah, to say the least, I I'm not going to spoil, but uh, Amazon's them. It is a ride. (laughs) I've been hearing a lot about that as well. I haven't seen it myself as of yet. We do have Amazon prime. I just haven't sat down to check it out. But Mm -hmm. so for those who haven't seen it quite yet, uh, do you have like a succinct sort of explanation about what it's about or maybe what the, point of discussion is about it Mm -hmm. you know it's very funny that um you know this is the beauty of horror podcast right so i would say amazon's them is is working through a lot of different beautiful elements as far as the horror genre is concerned so first of all like the cinematography throughout the series is gorgeous like it's Mm -hmm. beautifully shot beautifully lit all of uh all of the characters in it, black and white, are just beautifully, you know, um, uh, dressed in like various color palettes. Like we know that a lot of times that color has to do with some kind of, you know, metaphorical, you know, significance. So that's there in the series. The black family has to endure so much from so many different antagonizing elements, like internal and external. So like, there's a lot that's being unpacked in the series, not just from a, a, a racial element, there's horror elements to it, the intertwining of race and horror. I mean, there's the, there's the social, there's the political, I mean, class, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's really doing like a lot over its short runtime. So I think first people should be aware that it's an anthology series. So like akin to like, let's say like American horror story, where it's literally kind of like a one and done season. Now there isn't a confirmation yet that, you know, the next anthology, will it continue with the Emory family? 
or will it be a completely new story? So at this time, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, and I'm intrigued to see what's next. Um, and especially, let's say, if it's the same creative slash director. But I tr- I hope I didn't spoil too much. I hope I explained a little about it. But I think so. I think, you you know, it sounds like you, you put your finger on the pulse and gave us a little glimpse of that without giving away too much about the the details, you know, the, the, the parts that maybe might be sensitive for people who want to get surprised and see what's going on in the series and make up their uh, minds for themselves. Uh, it's something interesting there that you've touched upon when you mentioned uh, the use of cinematography and how there's a lot of beautiful imagery within the series. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, there is a very contentious conversation going on about particular social political portrayals or, just how things are approached in that series. And so uh, since this is the first episode, I'm sure people who uh, know me would know this a little bit, but people who don't know me through the podcast, because they're just listening for the first time, (laughs) uh, this is a sort of companion piece to my master's thesis, which is on the beauty of cosmic horror. And that in itself is an offshoot of a course that I took on the beautiful in film. And in that course, we, I forget the names of the exact theorists who brought this up, but it was brought up that it's a very contentious topic in general to talk about aesthetics like beauty in academia when we're talking about film or any other art form, because beauty is considered to be a rather destructive aspect of an artwork that politically speaking, it can often be used to punch down, to elevate a piece above uh, a particular uh, subset of people who may not have the right language or tools or, or, or whatever to uh, connect with it, or it's trying to communicate to other you know parts of culture that would link to it, but they're already in a privileged position to be able to do so. So is that conversation a fair conversation or not? Which is the whole point of our course was to open that up a little bit mm-hmm. and find a different way to talk about it and kind of get out of the, the, the snooty uh, part of it where you know beauty is the apex of what we're trying to strive for and achieve and rather just talk about it kind of in a vacuum, but still in its relation to the other aspects that a piece of art may have to offer. So I think that you bringing up them is a very good fit for how I would say some might even argue that the cinematography being so beautiful might contribute a bit to that surface level engagement that people might have with it. Right. And dumb down their understanding of what other, you know, missteps may take place along the way. Right. Um, and I, I don't want anyone to be under the impression that the series was quote unquote perfect or that it, you know, hit every single mark and there was no problems and there was, you know, nothing to engage with. I mean, the fact that it's had such a visceral reaction amongst the horror community and especially uh, black uh viewers as well is, mm-hmm. is certainly worth noting because when, you know, you, especially, you know, the films that we're even going to talk about today, um, it's a very, it's, it's, it's different when subject matter is dealing with various, you know, marginalized groups. So whether that be, you know, race, whether it be gender, whether it be sexuality, whether it be particular like class struggles, but like, you know, the, the people that are most like at risk of, of violence or, 
horror, you know, literally horror, right? Horror, Whether yeah. that be ha- capital H horror or lowercase horror. I mean, the point is that it's there. And I think the films that we're going to talk about today, you know, Guillermo del Toro is such a master at this, how he balances beauty and horror in one concise, like tight film. Mm-hmm. Um, every single time. And at the same time is working through so much, um, you know, like, you know, like we're talking about Amazon's them so much like history and sociopolitical and, you know, you know, just, uh, his films. I just, okay. Okay. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. (laughs) But you know what you're getting, you're getting in the flow and the mood. And, uh, we have, uh, two films to talk about actually this time. So normally, uh, I would plan to maybe do one film, but we decided to be ambitious out the gate. And it's a kind of a running theme for just about every sort of media project I've made for myself. I've set up rules and this is how it's going to be. This is the length. This is how many things I'm going to do. And I always end up either doing more or less. And so <laughs> I think it's uh, it's in theme for me that uh, out the gate, I'm going to do two films. And since we're so excited, what films are we going to be talking about today, Danny? So we are going to be discussing The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. Ooh, two films that are deeply personally like effective to my heart. I I saw Pan's Labyrinth first and just as an Alice in Wonderland fanatic, just latched onto it really hard. It was like Wonderland horror edition for me. Mm-hmm. And of course, as I've aged and gotten more involved in my studies and just grown as a person, there are different aspects of it that start to speak to me more. And then I saw The Devil's Backbone a few years after that. And I liked it the first time, but I thought uh, I was still in that phase of ghost stories have to be scary. So I thought this was fine. (laughs) And now I think there are some days, depending on the day you'll ask me, I may prefer it of the two. Mm -hmm. Just depends on if I'm more of a horror mood or more of that fantasy kind of kick. Do you have a preference between the two? You know, I I guess sometimes, I suppose, like, you know, kind of like food, right? Like sometimes you're like, yeah. oh, I need something salty or I need something sweet. <laughs> or something, I, yeah. Something Precisely. Spicy. Yeah. It's same thing. It, it's all on mood. And you're right. I was, I was uh, exactly like you. I actually did see Pan's Labyrinth first and then just did like a binge watch to see like, okay, how can I get all of the other films, you know, in the, you know, in the Guillermo del Toro canon, you know what, actually, if we're being honest, I think before we probably saw the devil, uh, I mean, before we saw Pan's Labyrinth, we probably saw Blade 2. Yeah, we did. You know, so <laughs> I mean, we, we technically had engaged with his work before, but you know, yeah, apples, I mean, just. I saw Mimic <laughs> as well, way before either of those and didn't uh-huh. even know who I was watching. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Well, before we start up, um, just to make sure in case there's people out there that haven't seen these films, I want to give a quick synopsis just so they know the general gist. Uh, Spoiler warning, in order to talk about something as specific as an element like beauty, we will have to talk specific details of the films. So I would advise anybody who hasn't seen them, maybe check the synopsis here. If it strikes your interest, go watch it. Otherwise we're going to spoil it for you anyway, but trust me, a Guillermo del Toro film is never truly spoiled because you can never actually spoil the experience that you will have <laughs> if you see these movies for the first time. But uh, here's uh, we're going to do this in chronological order. So the first film I'd like to talk about is the devil's backbone as that came out in 2001. 
And the synopsis I have is as follows. Uh, set in a remote orphanage in Civil War-torn Spain, The Devil's Backbone follows the struggles of Carlos, a young boy who is unexpectedly admitted to the orphanage to keep him safe from the fascist enforcers sweeping the country. Carlos is initially picked on by the other boys due to his privileged background. However, they all end up bonding over their shared hatred of the orphanage caretaker and handyman, Jacinto, who has a violent disposition and a disturbing obsession with the vault in the kitchen wall. Upon knocking over the knight's pitcher of water, Carlos and orphan ringleader Jaime venture off to the kitchen to fetch more water. That's where Carlos comes face to face with what the other children call the one who sighs. He's the ghost of a young boy that walks the halls at night, all the while whispering, many of you will die. As the war around them drifts closer and closer, the boys find themselves trapped between Jacinto's increasing aggression, panic amongst the adults running the orphanage, and the one who sighs becoming more active than ever. So quite a spooky little film, I would say. Um, so what made you think of this particular title when we had our first uh, discussion about this podcast? So I know that literally um, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth are actually a double feature and yeah. that actually they um, canonically fit together as one entire story that, um, you know, not even knowing that uh, some of the characters that we'll talk about in Pan's Labyrinth or that the events of Pan's Labyrinth directly connect to the devil's backbone and vice versa, all because of a war, all because of a historical event that, you know, happened to these children and the ripple effects and ramifications of, you know, uh, real horror in this way that can happen to children. So one of the reasons why I thought of it was um, I'm also a, a huge fan of just the genre and especially trying to unpack, like, I, I know you talk about me, like, as the, the empathetic writer, but like, you know, I don't <laughs> know, I just, I just really get into stories that are trying to, trying to unpack this stuff that are really just trying to right. see this point of view from, you know, the ages of children, teenagers, adults, like how they, you know, trying to survive, like a lot of these, you know, stories, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth are survival stories as well. I would, I would even maybe put them in like the survival horror genre to an extent. But yeah, I mean, oof, this film, like upon first viewing, it was just, it was just chilling. And it was really interesting to see the ghost aesthetic, uh, the haunting aesthetic that Guillermo loves to work with because so many different places are leave behind these remnants, these ghosts, these, um, this, these, this bad energy, um, because something horrific has happened there. And, you know, to see him do this in a film that came out, you know, more than a decade after, um, Crimson Peak, right. Uh, with, with, you know, similar, you know, similar, not the same, but like a ghost story and how the ghosts aren't there to be malevolent or to just jump out and scare everyone or kill anyone. They're actually there to like warn and help and protect. And, you know, it's, it's just like that thing, like when we were kids that our parents, you know, may have told us like, Oh no, the monster doesn't want you. Like the monster like wants the bad people or like the monster, like, 
you know, isn't going to, you know, hurt you, you know, like the monster's not real, like they're human monsters, but like, you know, metaphorical ones or ones that we draw from our imagination are just that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's Del Toro in a nutshell, too. I mean, he's kind of uh, at his age now, I'd say he's kind of the grandfather of, uh, you know, modern day monsters. He mm-hmm. will, you know, he his house is an orphanage for all monsters and he takes mm-hmm. care of them. Uh, I was watching some bonus material for Pan's Labyrinth today, some old interviews that he did. I think it was at Tribeca. And um, he was stating how uh, when the, they were talking about all of his different movies that he made and uh, when it came to Blade 2, they were asking about if he also had a lot of heart and soul in that. And he said, oh, I like it. That's more a uh, Goyer's thing. I don't get Blade. Why would he kill those guys? I'd invite him over for tea. They're vampires. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he made a good point about that, how he's always, as a child, had a connection with monsters because he kind of struck a deal with them in his mind that they couldn't hurt him and frighten him if he decided to be their friend. And ever since then, they've always been his friends. And you see that in films like this, you know, that child, childlike innocence that you see within the devil's backbone, I think is one of the pure elements that creates that sort of sense of awestruck beauty that we can have, especially on that first experience with the film is how we have, I mean, keep them. I think, you know, us as film viewers, we are competent enough to know that what we were watching is fiction and then it was created. Mm-hmm. So we know that we're looking at child actors portraying these characters. And yet they're so real. Even if you don't speak Spanish, like mm-hmm. you get them. If, if you've even had that slight mischievous nature as a child. Uh, in fact, in this movie, there's so many kids. There's like a kid for every personality type in there yeah. too. You have, uh, I forget the kid's name, but you have one where they say he doesn't talk much, but he stares a lot. You know, he's just a quiet, shy child. And I liked uh, those different aspects in that film as well. Is there anything about the film that every time you go back to it, that that's kind of what you're searching for? Like there's like that, that moment for you. Mm, I know upon subsequent rewatch, I tried to find, you know, how sometimes a director may put some Easter eggs in there that like, you know, the ghost was there all along or the horror Mm -hmm. was there in plain sight. You know what I mean? Like there's different moments like that, that I, that I've tried to find. Um, I've even tried to watch the film with a child's mindset. And then I've also tried to watch the film from an adult's mindset, which is very interesting because the balance that, you know, he, like you mentioned, he employs in his films is that he's working from both perspectives that he is working Mm -hmm. from, you know, the, the, the mindset or the, you know, the, you know, in a lot of ways, the naivete of a child um, that they may be working from, or because they have experienced so many different things, they have a certain type of maturity to certain situations or certain, you know, aspects of life. So I've tried to watch it in a, in a different, I don't know, kind of frame of mind or context each and every time. So I I think upon subsequent rewatches, I've just tried to, I don't know, go into it, into uh, a, a different way every time. I don't know. I don't know how to describe that, but. I think I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. I'm a big uh, supporter of that mentality. I love to watch a film. If a film really connects with me, every time I try to watch it, um, 
there are certain moments that I will go back to a certain mindset if I want to watch it more for like a comfort film, just have it on in the background. But I do think that if you have a film that really speaks to you, it's good to explore what is it that you heard it say, basically, because you the more you listen, the more you're going to get from it. Um, in our courses on the beautiful, they in philosophy, they talked about this as an attitude. They say, you know, you strike different attitudes uh, in different from your different perspectives. So say you're in a museum and you come to your favorite painting. Now, the person who knows a bit about painting is going to be able to look at the skill involved, the brush strokes, the colors, the types of paint used in oils, the frame. But there may be other times that you go and you look at the subject matter or other times that you're looking at the shading or just the image itself. How does it speak to you in that way? So when we use an aesthetic attitude is where I think that was by uh, his last name is Nene. I forget his first name. I want to say Alexander Nene, but I could be wrong about that. I should have my books next to me when I do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few people quoted in the in the document I sent you, but uh, Nene talks of the aesthetic attitude being an attitude where we take a bit of a distance from whatever we're experiencing, whether it be a piece of music or a film or any other art piece yeah. like a painting, yeah. and just try to see it on its own merits and see where it takes us because of all of those aesthetic qualities that it has. And I think that for anybody who wants to test that sort of skill out and build an aesthetic attitude, you could not pick a better entry-level filmmaker than Guillermo del Toro to do this with because aesthetic is so strong in stories that are in the, in and of themselves moving and entertaining. So even if you slip out of that and you just kind of enjoy the fact that the kids are being so kid-like or that the ghost is very scary. You're still in good hands basically is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I think del Toro is very good for that. But if you do want to build that skill there, you know, just looking at the color of the water in the basement and then the way the shine of the blood that comes from Santi's forehead can be those little aesthetic tricks that he pulls can reshape or reform the way you experience the film. If you just get those lights real nice and low, get a nice crisp Blu-ray and, let him just take you on his kind of visual and auditory adventure. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was beautiful. Like, you, what you made me think of as well is that in Guillermo del Toro's films, he makes just, like he said, like such beautiful, like horror films. Like, so, like, so much either control or restraint, like you were mentioning with mm -hmm. Santi, to have the, um, almost you know trans you know the translucent visage of you know of the spirit like outline like yeah you know, this, this cold you know you know white pale looking visage there and like you mentioned just a little just a little like you know speck of you know blood to see like where the traumatic event was that you know happened to him in life just, like just a little like not going you know overboard not i mean like that just that little bit is already in itself telling a story that just the visual yeah. of uh, let's say the bomb in the courtyard, right. You know, like it's, it's just, 
this kind of beautiful, you know, these beautiful framing devices that just are so impactful and so memorable uh, as far as a, a, a filmic experience. Like you could just show the frame of little Santi like down in the, you know, lower level there just by himself. And people are like, Oh, the devil's backbone. I mean, or, exactly. or showing just <laughs> that bomb, you know, that lone, you know, missile in the courtyard, uh, the school, school grounds courtyard. And it's like, Oh, devil's backbone. Mm. You know, like it's, it's amazing, you know, directors, filmmakers and artists, which he is, he is an artist. Like he's one of those people that, you know, like he said, loves to draw out or sketch out, you know, um, various either characters, character elements, motifs, or different things that he wants to have have read visually, like through the screen. And I think that's, um, I think actually maybe more directors should do that. Like if they aren't doing it, like even if they're not the best artist in the world, even if they're yeah. not the best like painter in the world for the colors that they want to use in the film, like, you know, it's amazing where sometimes you're, you know, your want or your request in a film can go if you say like this, you know, people who work with you, you know, in that industry, whether they be cinematographers or uh, painters or background artists or sound engineers or whatever, they can be like, oh, okay, let's, let's start from where you want and let's see where we can take it. Let's see where we can, you know, stretch it out. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, exactly. And as you were saying, you don't have to be a great artist and and we live in the digital age. You can Photoshop stuff if you want Mm -hmm. to. And (laughs) uh, if you, you know, take your time and do whatever you want to with that. I mean, I see, you know, I have quite a few tattoos and I've experienced different techniques of how they can create that. But, you know, some will get a photo of the body part and see where the empty space is. Mm. And if they have a more illustrative style, they'll probably just draw on the photo of say like, patches on my arm i've had others that are slightly more realistic and they'll kind of do like this photo manipulation of somebody's face and show the colors and be like you mean like this it's not the tattoo i have but it's just i could already see as a layman what they're going for and if you do it the other way around that you're the layman you're like kind of like this and you give a professional that you know that you're in good hands you hired them for a reason so I, I love that Del Toro, and he does have skill. I mean, if you've seen his sketches, yeah, um, they're, yeah. <laughs> his yeah. creations are very close to what he draws. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, but then again, he's also worked with other artists in films, say like uh, Hellboy 2. He's worked with Chet Zar on a few of his designs. And if you know either of their styles, you can also see where they come in. Uh, but I agree with you that more filmmakers should kind of put more hands on with what they want everything to convey basically visually, mm-hmm. even if it's not a storyboard, I get how some filmmakers don't really like storyboards because then they feel like they have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, shoot from the hip. If you don't want to do it that way and you find a better shot when you're on location, you don't have to, it's your movie. <laughs> that's, tr- that's true. But yeah. It's, it's, um, it's interesting how that can make for a more dynamic experience when, there is that element to it. So let's say like, I'm just kind of spitballing films here. So example, like Mad Max Fury road was like a film was, was was in so many different ways, like a graphic novel come to life. Like the the fact that it was really like drawn out like this, like this happens here and this explosion happens, this, you know, they're swinging from this, like, you know, to have that kind of blocked out and then it, you know, 
like you said, it's not necessarily constrained to the storyboards, but at the same time, the fact that it's there for like visual reference, like it's there for, you know, for, for the, for the filmmaker, for the director, for, you know, the on shoot, you know, scene person for, you know, the stunt coordinators, the stunt work people, like it's, it's amazing how when you're just that adept at, at what you do. And if you do, like you say, like, if you have the skill to paint it out, draw it out, if you're, let's say you're a, a digital FX person, right. And like, say mm. like, oh, well, I want it to look like this or move like this or stretch like this. Yeah. You know, you have your directors who are more focused on the artistry aspect of it, trying to get this sort of purity of what they are feeling out onto the uh, onto the lens at this point, your screens. And I do think that if we talk in terms of beauty, there is a beauty to that skill. I mean, there's it's it's funny you get into a tricky territory there. That was one thing they taught us very early on. Um, so a lot of the philosophical discussions on beauty come from Immanuel Kant. So back in the 1700s, him talking about scientific processes and, and other transcendental thought processes. But he did discuss aesthetics as well. And he tried to apply a, a very wonderfully uh, German white man's dogmatic approach to how we, we feel emotions. <laughs> but it was useful because he does, in this scientific way, break down the differences between, say, appreciating something for being good at being what it is and being beautiful. He, you know, he, he went to great lengths to try to say, when I say that something is beautiful, I'm not saying that it is in his case, he would talk about maybe painting. So it's not necessarily a good painting because of its technique. I can talk about those things, but if there's a beauty in that, in those skills, there's still a heart and a soul and there's more to it that strikes us, or at the very least, there's another thing that's striking us when we have that kind of uh, kind of response to somebody's craftsmanship and skill that they've put on display for us. Yeah, like that that exhale was 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 it. Like when you when you see a piece of media, and I think you know, like what I was initially hitting on when I said, like, what do I love about the horror genre? There are just so many talented people that are that are horror creators, whether it be, you know, special effects, makeup, puppetry, um, hair, clothing design. I mean, um, like we talked about set building, set design, you know, uh, creature experts like there's just so many talented people in the horror genre that are constantly like pushing the craft as far as what is even like possible or impossible <laughs> to make possible <laughs> right yeah like in, in the, the paradox <laughs> yeah like it's a, it's a loop like and that they've you know since the you know happy demise of the haze code they've just like kind of just like especially once the 80s hit as you know like oh. they're just like blood gore explosions you know oh, yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> what can we do <laughs> yeah like literally what can we do that we weren't allowed to do before so it's just like actually maybe i should take that back a few as far as American film, obviously we had Jaws in the in the seventies, uh, and we had Alien, which were like mm -hmm. like these really gory, <laughs> like splattery, uh, beautiful uh, beautiful messes of a film that like when we think about it now, we're like, oh wait, 
films. They weren't doing that in film before, but like to think that yeah. they were trailblazers in like so many different ways to open people up to the possibilities of like, what is horror? What can it be? Like, what can it do? What can, you know, what stories can you tell with it? You know, and it, it goes right back to the devil's backbone. The fact that, you know, Guillermo del Toro said, you know, I'm going to not only make this horror film, but like, like we talked about, he has just this beautiful horror aesthetic that ha- that works for him and somehow speaks to us. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's really interesting, like you said, as far as a beauty aesthetic or a beauty aesthete or whatever, that it can have a power dynamic to it. It can have, you know, a power dynamic. It can have class levels to it. It can have racial elements to it as far mm-hmm. as um, who is included in, in the beauty, you know, who's included in the world, who's not included, um, whose perspective, you know, matters whose whose story is being shown. And I, I think it's uh important that, you know, so many different films, I think from uh, Guillermo and other artists who are doing horror stories have just always pushed to highlight, you know, the underdog, the final girl, the person who is like just usually like <laughs> the person like you said is usually being punched down on in society right. in so many different ways. Like those are the people who like not only like live, but like go out like in a, you know, bloody like blaze of glory usually or, yeah. or able to like limp off into the sunset uh, or night or whatever. <laughs> and yeah. You know. Laugh maniacally in the back of a truck. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful imagery like that. It's just like, yes. You made it. <laughs> True. Yeah. And, you know, if we, off, I, of course, if you were to think beyond what we see in the film, it can get really dreary sometimes. Mm-hmm. You get your midsummer uh, conversations yeah. of, is it though? Is it a good? But what we see in the films usually try to tell you a bit about what you should be feeling in that moment. Del Toro definitely likes people to walk away feeling like, the right people had the right circumstances, whether they be negative or positive. That's kind of the feeling I get from him, especially with the devil's backbone, because this movie, whoo, yeah. it does not treat people well, does it? No. <laughs> no. Like actually, he does that a lot in his in his filmic canon, that his characters go through a lot. Like yeah. they go, and, and you know what? It's it's a, it's empowering and refreshing, you know, like I mentioned to see stories with children as the focus and the fact that just how adults may be going through a lot, like children are going through sometimes like something like much worse, <laughs> like that children a lot of times don't have the resources or the tools to like be physically able to fight back. So like they have to use right. their wits or they have to, you know, band together to be bigger than one individual, which was so beautiful in this film to see all of the children like come together to like fight the monster, quote unquote, you know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. They're, they're big woolly mammoth with it, you know, come after him at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I actually never noticed that the, like the first few times I saw the film, actually as my fiance pointed out in this one, mm-hmm. when they go after uh, Jacinto with the spear, she's like, Oh, he's a mammoth. It's like, oh my God, they did like an hour before have a conversation about the tribesmen had to come together to fight a mammoth with sticks that smaller, uh, you know, smaller humans grouped together 
were more powerful than the one large beast because the large beast wasn't capable of the same. They didn't have the the, the same like cognitive capacity mm. to outsmart the people. And you have the same thing with the kids here. Mm-hmm. And it is a very uh, touching moment, I feel. As violent of a moment as it is, I thought it was very touching when they yeah. come together that way. Yeah. Um, and you're right. That was a great moment of setup and payoff. Like this film and, the, and Pan's Labyrinth have a lot of moments that have brilliant setups and brilliant payoffs um, yeah. as far as like establishing a moment that, you know, it's not like a flashing neon sign necessarily like pay attention mm-hmm. to this thing. It's more of just like a subtle interwoven into the story, you know, thing that, you know, that when it, you know, finally has that payoff, it is just so like sweet. Like, Oh, I was paying attention. Like I didn't, I didn't fall asleep <laughs> during the, por- the important moment or my mind didn't drift off or whatever. A plus. Yeah. A plus. <laughs> you pass a, a quiz. A plus, 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 plus. Absolutely. There you go. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very rewarding if you catch those things. And I like that Del Toro allows you to do it. He doesn't just spoon feed it to you the way a lot of, uh, especially modern uh, filmmakers mm. will do these days. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's something that, um, you know, I think maybe for some of the newcomers in horror these days, like they, like he said, like you just need to trust your audience. Like they can handle it. Like it's, it's okay. Yeah. We don't need we need, you don't need to hold my hand. It's okay. <laughs> I think there's a, another confidence there too that you know nowadays it's much more of a a market or at least not nowadays, but there are just for most studio productions it is a marketed product, mm-hmm. and so they're just thinking about those initial theater hits. Can we make the money that we're looking for? And I don't really care what happens about the movie after we're done with this. But Del Toro is a filmmaker that has a lot of faith in his audience that if you like it, you will come back. Yeah. And if you come back, you're going to, you're, isn't it wonderful to be able to unpack more and not just get, yep, that's the exact same thing I saw last time and nothing has changed. Mm. But it's more rich if you kind of pack it full of things and just trust that a very loyal audience member has not only the ability, but the desire to look into what you are trying to uh, put out to them. Um, it's interesting that, you know, maybe some might even say that maybe, you know, uh, Del Toro peaked with like Pan's Labyrinth, like maybe like it's his magnum opus, if you will, Hmm. that like, you know, if you maybe have like a Guillermo Del Toro, like collection of films, like some people will go to, let's say the Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, because those are the the auteur films right like when we're talking about right. beauty aesthetics we're talking about like oh well these were the prestige films these were the films that got all the accolades and the awards and made his career explode and you know some people may like completely kind of disregard pacific rim or you know hellboy to the golden army or oh, what um, a movie or even like the shape of water like some people might say like oh that was okay but it's not Pan's Labyrinth, you know, or it's not the devil's backbone, yeah. you know? So, you know, it's a benchmark. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that his career and what I truly, truly love, and I love it for him that he's had this opportunity to make what he wants to make, to explore what he wants to explore, to say like, no, I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. I love everything. Like I love robots. <laughs> I love, I love comic books. Like I love, you know, like, yeah. Like I wish more 
you know, people sometimes wouldn't, you know, confine themselves to these boxes as far as, you know, their, you know, their creative talents, their, their directorial talents, because sometimes you see different things in their films that are like, oh my goodness, you would be an amazing sci-fi, you know, director, yes. or you would be an amazing horror director. Like, why are you kind of pigeonholing yourself into either dramas or comedies or this or that? Like, please, like, do more, do more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you see a few that are starting to do that. I'm very thankful that Jordan Peele stepped into horror and, and showed us uh, his, especially when he started doing The Twilight Zone. That's when I was like, mm. yes, please show me how nerdy you are. I want to see it. <laughs> I want to see all those wonderful little uh, just goofy stories that are in your head that that, <laughs> that, that particular platform is going to allow you to make. Um, but let's see, James Wan's an example. Mm-hmm. If he's like, hey, y'all, I love me some Fast and Furious, and that's what I'm going to do next. And he just left and did that. He did Aquaman. I mean, yeah. you know, that's wild. more of that, please. Mm-hmm. Like, for, for example, sure. like, obviously, Nita Costa's Candyman isn't out yet, but the fact that she's already been, like, slated to make Captain Marvel, too. And I'm just like, yes, right? I love to see it like this. Have a repertoire. <laughs> have range. Do that. <laughs> exactly. Like make movies. Don't make the same movie with a different coat of paint all the time. Yeah. You can do that and it's going to be fun. Yeah. And it's interesting how we talk about with uh, Del Toro, you, you you talk about the Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth often together because they are spiritually linked together. But as you've mentioned, you have Pacific Rim, you have Hellboy, you have Blade 2, you have Crimson Peak, which just goes full Jane Eyre on us with that mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. And they're all notably del Toro films. And I would say they even on an aesthetic level probably appeal in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, I would say for sure, they yeah. may not all be as violent and horrible, but they definitely all kind of hit the same sort of tragic core mm-hmm. at, at at least one point in the films. <laughs> Pacific Rim is a little shaky at, to- at times at that point, but that's not what that movie's about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you have a director who has this huge array of the types of films that he makes. And it's still undeniably del Toro through and through. Mm-hmm. And that is what I'm here for. I love to see a director that has a stamp, but it's not one note. Were there any other elements specifically about the devil's backbone that you kind of jump out at you or, or, you know, strike you when you see it that we can quickly uh, talk about before we go on to Pan's Labyrinth? Uh, quick, quick notes. Hmm. You know what? It's interesting. Okay, I guess I'll just say this. This is um, interesting that The Devil's Backbone is a precursor of so many different things to come in Del Toro's career. That this film, like you could see from this film how all of the other films that he made after, like, can start right back to The Devil's Backbone as far as, like, where, where his, you know, career headed i guess you know obviously i'm talking in retrospect here right being reflective but yeah the devil's backbone like if you haven't seen it before if you haven't seen it in a while like watch it and then watch some of the other films in his canon of work you'll see like so many different things like started Mm -hmm. way back when in like 2001 and you and i have to remember i have to like shake myself i was like 2001 right it doesn't look it it does not feel like a movie from 2001 no so I guess that's all I have to say. Go back and watch it and you'll be surprised and you'll be like, oh, the, 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 the I guess the baby <laughs> of the group. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
it's a spark that kind of mm-hmm. you know drifted off into everything else. Uh, I noticed it the last time that I watched. I think I watched it yesterday, and we were talking about that as well. That there are specific moments that we were like, "Hey, was Crimson Peak just him saying I want to do this again, but then see if I can make that look a little better?" Or oh, I'm just going to keep that part, and that's just the way I do ghosts, mm-hmm. or this is how I do this, mm-hmm. and that way he can create this world. I don't know. I haven't seen enough interviews, but you're right that the devil's backbone seems to be that sort of DNA that will be notable for the future films to come. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Pan's Labyrinth. Let's talk. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. Okay. So I had a feeling this would be the one that we wanted to dive into the most, even though uh, traditionally speaking, the devil's backbone is uh, more horror in a kind of straightforward sense. You know, it's a ghost tale, but it is still also more gothic. So it depends on your perspectives on horror. Um, as I've said, when I first saw it, I was like, eh, ghosts need to be scary. And this was more scary in that. I liked how you put it the more like the naivete of it would make it very frightening. You know, a child just kind of running away from a noise, but Pan's labyrinth is the kind of look back at the devil's backbone. And I think it's the moment where del Toro said, I want to put all the monsters in that story. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Here is a quick synopsis for anybody who has not seen Pan's Labyrinth. Set around the end of the Spanish Civil War, so if you look at it time-wise between The Devil's Backbone and now, uh, there is a gap in time between the two. Pan's Labyrinth follows a young girl by the name of Ophelia as her mother marries a fascist leader, Captain Vidal. Ophelia is immediately unhappy with her new life, as Vidal shows her nothing but contempt. She's the only child on the premises of Vidal's large estate in the mountains, All of the adults working and living alongside her continuously tell Ophelia that she needs to let go of her love of fairy tales and to grow up. All save for Mercedes, one of the housekeepers. Mercedes tries to teach Ophelia lessons about the real world by appealing to Ophelia's interest in myths and legends. One day, while exploring the large labyrinth garden in the back of the estate, Ophelia is led by a fairy-like creature to meet an old wise fawn living at the heart of the labyrinth. He informs Ophelia that she is actually a princess from another world and that her true family are worried sick about her. Still, he needs to know for sure if she is who he believes her to be. In order to leave this horrible reality and return to her loving kingdom, Ophelia must perform three tasks without breaking a single rule. Only then will the Fawn be able to take her home. The horrors of our reality converge with the nightmares that lurk within a child's fantasy as Ophelia undergoes her trials amidst an outbreak of guerrilla pushback against the captain and her mother struggles with her ailing health. There's a lot more to it, but that is a good, I think, succinct kind of it. Yeah. Those are the major beats of the film. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So you were very excited. Uh, I think... (laughs) Just about anybody who has seen this movie would agree that it is a beautiful movie, but this is the part that I find most uh, exciting as well. Why? What is it about this film that gets our hearts just swelling with joy to watch it? You know what? This film for me is like you, or maybe we've alluded to throughout, right? The seemingly dreamlike fairy tale aesthetic and quality to it that especially I guess you know maybe when we saw this okay so 2006 I was still in middle school wow that was a while ago oh anyway (laughs) it, it hit some of those beats for me because I was still around that age I could relate to Ophelia I could 
I could mm. see myself like in her experience or through the eyes of this child um, experiencing this magical world or wanting to escape. You know what I mean? And I think like more than anything, a lot of times children just want to escape, even if they're not trying to escape yeah. from something horrifying. That's just our mindset. That's just how our our brains before they get, you know, molded, you know, by the world and shaped and, you know, forced into these boxes, like our minds just want to roam, you know, our, our minds just want to uh, escape and have, you know, our, our imaginations just tickled. So like, so all throughout this film, it just like hit on so many different like fairy tale elements that we're familiar with. Like, it was just like this tour de force of like Paul W.S. Anderson or like Grimm's fairy tales or Western or Eastern or just like so many different like mythologies like packed into this film. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there was just, it was just hitting on so much that like consequent like rewatches, you'll find that like, oh, this is a, this is a aspect of this mythology, or this is the aspect of that mythology, or the fact that you could put so many different kind of frames of reference on these monsters or these creatures that um, I think was really interesting that Guillermo del Toro was able to achieve that none of these creatures per se are from a particular place, but as humans, oh, yeah. we, we all have different mythologies about some of these creatures, right? Like, right. Um, for example, like obviously the most, um, you know, blatant example, right. Or the most one that comes to the forefront, obviously is, is, is pan the fawn, right? Like mm -hmm. there's so many different goat creatures, um, creatures that have goat like features or whatever that just show up throughout different mythologies, like around the world or, or that have, you know, whether, whether the goat is a good spirit, a bad one, a, or the devil. Like, I mean, there's like so many different <laughs> like things that it's funny that goats, I'm like, why did goats get the evil? <laughs> like why did goats? If square pupils and horns, I think. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, they're weirdly ethereal mammals that don't make mm -hmm. sense to our brains. Yeah. And they have like really bad attitudes as well. They really have this all like, fuck it. I'm the only thing that matters right now. And you can get yeah. out of my way. And this is small little goat. And we're like, hey, I think that people have developed this uh, sort of like antagonistic attitude with them just because we can't understand a goat, basically. Mm. Like, yeah, there's you're right. Like there's this different kind of aesthetic like beauty qualities to goats that are just so singular to them that there's like mm -hmm. nothing else like them you know yeah i did love how he played on as you mentioned like there's different mythological aspects in that one character how mm -hmm. you know more traditionally in a a modern telling of a fairy tale we tend to dumb things down and think that kids can't handle the more you know, dark and sinister aspects. So we keep it to its core. So a fawn tends to be, you know, it's Mr. Tumnus. It's a very happy-go-lucky kind of centaur-ish kind of character. When traditionally speaking, in a lot of pagan stories, fawns were so mischievous to the point of just destroying households just because they were bored, things of that nature. And I liked that this particular fawn had a more devilish kind of curled horn and at the same time, he was sort of weird earth deity and both friendly yet aggressive 
and he had no way of like a goat. You couldn't really like follow his, yeah, yeah. you know, emotional line there, which makes Ophelia constantly on edge mm-hmm. <laughs> around this creature. When normally in a movie of this caliber for kids, we're going to smile and want to buy all the dolls of the goat and give it to our kids. And <laughs> I don't, I think nobody's going to give this particular fawn to their kids. Uh, if their kids have watched the film. <laughs> and you know, what's interesting, like, Upon the film's conclusion, even throughout, I mean, I guess because I'm just, I was just always that kid who was just like, ooh, special effects, makeup, ooh, prosthetics, ooh, that like I would, I probably would be like, this is one of the coolest things like I've ever seen. Like, shout out all the way, Doug Jones, living legend. I'm not saying that another actor or actress couldn't have done this, but like Doug Jones has just been doing this work for so long that like he can just slip on the skin of any creature of any being and just take it to like astronomical heights. Yes. Yeah. I actually was tempted to get into like mime work when I was younger, just because of seeing this movie, I just thought I want to be that guy. I want to do that stuff. Uh, That never happened, but uh, (laughs) I totally agree with you. Doug Jones for me is, I think the X factor of this Mm -hmm. film, because a lot of the elements of the film are definite improvements upon the formula that came from the devil's backbone. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some cases, just a deviation, which, you know, for some will make it an improvement because it's more relatable to them. But, you know, for one, having a female protagonist, um, having a singular child, you know, so for anybody who is an only child would probably relate more to Pan's Labyrinth than to The Devil's Backbone. But these creatures, and again, as I pointed out with like the child actor thing, there's a part of you that knows that a human being had to make this. And even if you're not actively thinking about that, there's a part of you that is just completely confused mm-hmm. by what you are seeing because you were seeing a real fantasy creature right there in front of you. Yes. And you can experience it the way Ophelia experiences it through this performance. Yeah. That's just why, like, you know, in a lot of films, like I'll, you know, predominantly more so than anything, because, you know, we're, we're those kids who grew up with, live action everything we grew up with seeing an actor there like in the suit or in the makeup or in the whatever like we're used to seeing something physical and tangible there so like I remember like when the fawn like first you know kind of you know stepped away from like the the bark and out of like the I guess out of the element of the uh of nature. And when we actually like just saw this beautiful creature, like kind of waking up and like walking towards her, I like, I think I gasped. I probably gasped because I was like, I know I did. Yeah. (laughs) I was just like, this is everything. This is, this is amazing. (laughs) Like I, I'm like huge sci-fi fantasy geek grew up on like old school Star Trek to the present. Like just something just titillates me when I see, 110% that goes into the character work and the physicality of a creature like we were mentioning, like is like non-human. So there's like, there's all of these non-human elements and even Doug Jones as we'll probably talk about later on uh, the pale man, like, yeah. Ooh, same. And and that's wild. Like, I honestly think he should have gotten an Oscar for this film, an Oscar of, 
any any and all of the awards that the fact that he played two different characters and did two different performances for the extremes of what both were supposed to represent and do and so oh i could gush about this film forever it's just <laughs> well we have time fortunately that we can oh. i mean if, if, if you have time i've got some time to gush a bit about this film um, I do want to go back a little bit to uh, you were mentioning being that generation of seeing mm. things tangibly. Now, this is something to do with the devil's backbone, but it you know is something that they kind of do a lot in Pan's Labyrinth as well. I remember in the moment that got me the most with the devil's backbone is when I think it's Carlos goes up to the bomb and all the kids have the belief that it's alive because they can hear the gears still turning inside of it every now and then. And so they call it her. So they, he asks her, where is Sumti? Show me where he is. And then you have the wind blow the different ribbons on it. And one of the ribbons pops off and goes into the kitchen. Nowadays, you would probably get a very painstakingly crafted CGI kind of living ribbon once it came off mm-hmm. that would do some sort of follow me, come over <laughs> here kind of movement and yeah. get stuck in the window. And I love how this case, they just blew a ribbon in that direction (laughs) and then got it stuck on the window. And I'm sure it was the most irritating thing in the world to get right, Mm -hmm. but it looks so spellbinding. It gives me chills every time I see it. It makes Santi exponentially more terrifying to me because he's controlling the elements. And the same goes with Pan's Labyrinth. I think if they had made the fawn a pure CGI creature, we wouldn't have had the same feeling of Ophelia. I don't know if I like you being in the room with this character as you do seeing this actual tree barked, mossy, gravelly voiced fawn twitching and manically kind of grinning at her. But because he's really, when he gets face to face with her, he is, he's there. And we've seen the trees that he's been a part of as well. And we've seen her interact with all these things. So there is something to say about those sort of practical elements not to say that uh, you know that CGI can't be done well. It's done very well in this movie as well. The dragonflies, the fairies. But I do think that part of the, the very, I would say, objectively beautiful element of this is just that one thing that comes into play for me is lighting. Mm. And lighting is hard to fake. Yes, so when you yes. get something very intricate that's CGI, but you have nailed your you know, color filters and your lighting scheme and everything for it, the the demand that you and stress that you've just put on your effects team is astronomical. Yeah. And in this case, you know, the fawn is in the shadows mm-hmm. and it is moonlight that is resting on his face, uh, which comes from Del Toro's own personal experiences. I don't know if you know what the inspiration for the film was. Have you heard this uh, story? I'm not sure. Go ahead. Well, he said that both the devil's backbone and Pan's labyrinth came from situations from his childhood. Um, <laughs> that were just little small singular events. And with Pan's Labyrinth, he uh, said as a child that uh, I want to say it was his wardrobe, but I'm not too sure. It was a piece of furniture that was at the foot of his bed. And he said every night a fawn would creep out from behind it because he, he's, he now he says nowadays he's convinced that it was probably lucid dreaming or something, but you know, he mm. holds on to the belief that there was a fawn back there. Because in his town uh, in Mexico, they had an old Gothic um, temple 
which he said is the most bizarre thing you could ever find in Mexico, <laughs> as Catholic as it is. Uh, but they kept a very old Gothic temple. It had bells. And at midnight, they would always ring the bells. And as it was ringing, he said he would see the hand in the moonlight creeping from behind the uh, the furniture. And he would see the cloven hoof come from the side, the horn start to appear. By that time, he would always put his covers over his head and hope that it would go away. But he said, like clockwork, every single night, he eventually would wake up at like quarter to midnight just so he was awake for the bells so that he wouldn't wake up seeing the thing creeping out of it. But he could, you know, try to go back to sleep when it was about <laughs> to pop out from behind his uh, his wardrobe. And that left such an, a lasting impression on him. He just wanted to make a movie that he could share that feeling with everybody else. So that moment, that gasp that we have of him turning around as he is part of the foliage, that is it. That is the whole emotional spark of the film. And then from there, he's trying to tell a very specific story regarding uh, the, the dangers and evils that children have to go through. One thing that we do with children is we often aren't aware or... I guess adults try to make themselves not aware mm-hmm. of how much children actually understand. Yes. And yes. as you said, with the devil's backbone, you know, often children just don't have the physical means to take care of themselves appropriately in certain circumstances. And so they have to call upon adults for help. But these films both show how kids escape, but also how they do so either to get away from things or to just make things just better in a way, but not, not necessarily because the world is so bad. I think the kids process things quite well for the most part. If you look at Ophelia, she's already running around chasing dragonflies from the moment she gets there and nothing's even happened, you know? Mm -hmm. And with the boys in the devil's backbone, they're constantly just turning everything into a toy. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say what struck me the most on a, if we want to talk slightly about the sociopolitical elements of it, how I think Del Toro did a phenomenal job showing the differences between how boys are treated when they're exploring their fantasies and imaginations than when girls are treated that way. You know, often girls are taught to just be more focused and aware. And in some cases it's necessary because it's the survival instincts we're trying to uh, impress upon, uh, you know, young women or, uh, individuals assigned female at birth, of course, uh, that there are real dangers to be aware of. But it is true, boys tend to be just stop doing the destructive thing that you're doing and go do whatever you want to do, which you see a lot in The Devil's Backbone versus this movie. Yeah. And it's it's funny that even, you know, if we're talking about boys, they're also caught in the trap of you can live your life and be free and roam around. And then it's like, okay, slap slap, slap, slap from an adult figure. Okay, enough of that childishness. Now it's time to be a man now. I'm like, you've been a child long yeah. enough. All this time we gave you free reign. Yeah. Now you're an adult. Now you are. Right now. <laughs> like yeah. Right now. I've decided. Yeah. It's time. I never taught you how to do any of this, but go build a wall. Yeah. Versus <laughs> versus girls, it's like like day one, day zero. They're like, okay, you're talking, you're walking a little bit. All right, go help mom in the kitchen. Go help grandma right? with that. Um, do this, do that, like automatically it's just like all right you know this is the gender we think you are this is the chores you're going to do this is the work you're going to do the fact that like like you said like no like less play more work (laughs) yeah 
And yet Ophelia is actually given the free reign, but only because she is in a you know a position of privilege. You know, she's the stepdaughter of the fascist dictator in the area, so they're not going to tell his uh, stepdaughter no, basically. Right, and I think even though he doesn't care, I, I love that you bring that up. That this film is also working through some class things. Um, that you know, like he said, you know, her mother is trying to move into a different class situation so that her unborn child and her daughter can survive like thinking about how in various ways the mother takes on so much abuse and horror you know just so her daughter can have a chance just so her her baby can have a chance like that she puts so many of her needs her own personal needs on the back on the back burner so that her children can survive this you know horrific like war and it's it's interesting that you know that element is there, and even at the end of the film when it concludes, and it's just like, yay, you know, uh, Ophelia, you survived. Here's your, you know, prize to go live with royalty, you know, in a in a castle like far, far away. Like so, for some people, you know, I get it. Like they don't like class stories like that, where you're just like, yay, you're you're the knight or the king or the queen, and now you can like rule over others type stories. So like, I think upon rewatches maybe i'll have to see how i feel about that element but it's mm-hmm. a part of fairy tale stories and a part of that escapism that children are like okay i can go live in the castle far far away like all of my problems will be gone like like i'll be able to kind of live a happily ever after like that you know so right. many stories are a happily ever after and that happily ever after element is some kind of like monarchy or like you know power structure with you know princesses and princes and knights and kings and queens and you know it's it's interesting that that's even in this film in the first place well the irony of it is that essentially she is living it and she's seeing just how awful it can be if you're not even privileged enough with who you are when you were born mm-hmm. to reap the benefits of it because although yeah you are the stepdaughter of the captain and so you can do whatever you want to as long as it doesn't piss him off that's really how her life is um but everything pisses him off because she's not a boy and because she's not his biological child he just sees her as his interloping child is running around on the grounds of his workplace Mm -hmm. and i think that Yes, she does get this ending where she gets to be a princess in the kingdom and stuff. But what I love the a lot about Del Toro's writing is he always gives the extra bit of information to let you know how it went. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. he does tell you that she ends up being the queen. And although they're immortal, they just give her the power because she is a very just and kind individual because she proved with how she was keeping her baby brother safe like even if it was just a little prick on the finger she's like you're not gonna hurt my brother Mm -hmm. and i don't want anybody to get hurt i've seen enough pain and suffering and you know death Mm -hmm. and because of that in her kingdom she learns from everything she saw vidal do and does the opposite Mm -hmm. now granted it's still a position of power which is a very uncomfortable uh privileged position to end your story on i will say that yes if you come you know that that is an interesting conversation to have as well as if you have a character who comes from nothing and they end up having everything 
what kind of story are you putting out there to people of what an ideal situation is. But I think what I always got from this movie is that nothing is ideal. Your ideals don't ever live up to reality and reality sure as hell isn't going to try to live up to your ideals. <laughs> so uh, she's unhappy in her circumstances on the estate. And when she goes into the fantasy stuff at first, she's like, freaking cool. There's a fawn here and they're fairies and it's awesome. He's like, cool, <laughs> go in that tree, get muddy and put this in the stomach of a frog. And she's like, well, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess I don't want people to be under any illusion that for children to have that escapist element, of a fairy tale kingdom is bad, but it's just just something I noticed. But at the same time, when you right. know, when you were going through what you were saying, it made me also think about that. There's so many different layers and ways to see a fairy tale story. So I also thought of it just because I have just more of a Christian background in my mm-hmm. religion and iconography and everything else. That obviously we know that Ophelia. Spoiler alert. She dies. She transitions to another plane of existence, some other plane of existence, right? At the end of the mm-hmm. film. And that there's a lot of Christian imagery to it, that the fawn, you oh. know, could have been this angelic, you know, force, you know, or creature, you know, giving her a test. Like it's very, it's very biblical. Like there's like a lot of kind of biblical elements to this film. And, you know, yeah. we're obviously, foist, you know, I may be foisting that upon it because it's what I'm familiar with. So maybe for a person who's Muslim or a person who's Hindu or Sikh or something else, like they may be able to put some of their own religious experience into some of the imagery at the end. But um, I also love the um, the moment, for example, like he said, as this film goes on, it actually you know, gets darker, it gets scarier, it gets more frightening, like... I mean, that the fantasy world and the real world start to bleed into each other. And like that moment, obviously, like, like we say, like, as it starts to bleed into each other in a literal fashion is when, you know, the fawn tells her to, you know, take this, this root and put it under the mother's bed. And like, you know, everything will be fine as long as you do as I say. And Captain Vidal finds the root and kills it. It destroys it. So not knowing what's real and what's fantasy, I don't know. It's just such a an experience that for the lay viewer, you know, you're completely on board with it because, you know, as we mentioned, like Guillermo del Toro, like establishes very early on that like, this is the world, this is the setting. I, I don't know. He makes, he makes the extraordinary ordinary. If that makes, yeah. if that makes sense, like very aptly put, you're you're totally on board with the fairies. You're totally on board that the piece of chalk has magical powers. Like you're totally mm-hmm. on board that like the fawn is like is right there. Like you know, like when Captain Vizal like walks up, that like that the fawn is still there. Like I mean, you're still just completely on board with anything that you know Del Toro wants to portray. You're just here for it, and you're just like okay. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. Big okay. But I think that's also a point he's making. I've seen interviews with him before where <laughs> he got a little mm-hmm. curmudgeony because, mm-hmm. you know, they get the question of, well, w- was it all real or was it in her head or what's going on? And he's like, of course it was real. Yeah. Because in his eyes, there is no line between reality and fantasy mm-hmm. because in his mind, monsters are real. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you should never fear a monster, you should fear people. Yes. And that's what he's trying to remind you of. Yes. 
Um, there's actually a great quote here that I wrote down from the devil's backbone when they're just, it's at the end of the film when they kind of reprise the whole narration that, so that the movie starts with the narration about what is a ghost and talks about the different, basically the different Gothic uh, definitions of what it means to be a ghost. And they come back to that after the movie is pretty much proven the point of the opening narration. And the line here says uh, a ghost is an emotion suspended in time. And I loved that quote. Um, that really struck my kind of like beauty <laughs> cortex, if you will. And I do feel that the same kind of applies to the fantasy within Pan's Labyrinth as well. All of these emotions that we see, they are suspended in time because a child's emotion is no different than an adult's emotion. The only difference is our experience and mental development in in how we process these things. But we wouldn't have nostalgia if these emotions were fundamentally different from each other. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't hearken back to childlike emotions if they were inferior or incorrect, basically. And for me, that is at least my take on if I had to put it succinctly what I find beautiful about both of these movies, it is that suspension of time that you have. They are timeless films. As you mentioned, The Devil's Backbone could have come out in like 2012. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really could have. Yeah, it could have come out like today. It could have, yeah. And it oh, it this movie hits so differently in 2021 oh, <laughs> than it did in 2001. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, like... And it's interesting when you write stories like this that you say are timeless because this film is operating on so many different levels of storytelling that we know the fairy tale, right? Like everybody has some kind of gateway, whether it be through a book, whether it be through a movie, whether, you know, usually it's through books. And I think that's important. And I love that element in this, in this film where like there is this fairy tale book, there's this magical book, you know, that she opens and she can read and yeah. it has all of these beautiful illustrations. So like it's it's operating on that level. Um, this film also, like you mentioned, like has has monsters in it, like all like throughout time, like we have all of these different monster stories. We have villain stories. Like, you know, this film is just like hitting on so many different things that are just the sign of a really fantastic writer. Like it, it just seemed like Guillermo del Toro was like firing on all cylinders. Like when he wrote this film and the fact that he wrote it and directed it, um, it's just, it's just like mind blowing to me. It's just like, you did this. What? Yeah. <laughs> like your mind. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. I would probably, it's impressive. I would probably say a, sister film to this one not well del toro but i would say by uh, a woman who is a great um admirer of his work and even mm-hmm. um is new relatively speaking to the horror community but isa lopez's um tigers are not afraid um also known as Wedven, which means like uh, they return very similar very similar story beats to this film not exactly okay. the same but more of a maybe more of a modern retelling of this film um, that takes place in South America. Um, We know that, you know, gun violence is is rampant, that they're, you know, like similar to um, Pan's Labyrinth, there's a war going on. And then obviously tigers are not afraid. There's a war going on. It's a drug war. Like children are caught in the middle, like adults Mm -hmm. are caught in the middle. Um, That this film, you know, uh, 
the film that she writes as well. It has ghosts in it that the mother is the one who comes back and is initially scares the daughter from the shadows that there is magic chalk in, in the film. Like there's, there's like a lot of different things. Like if you've seen uh, Isa Lopez's um, fairy tale film and you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, it's operating on this, like you mentioned, like this, this time and emotion, like wavelength that they're interconnected by, you know, so many different just um, fabric storytellings because the ghosts of one location can show up in another location, like that they can just have this um, mirror-like quality where um, they can they can just show up. I mean, and I, I love films like that, like honestly, like I think that's like maybe my aesthetic that like ghosts are so different uh, around the world and like what they look like, how they operate, um, mm. that... Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a particular kind of aesthetic that I like because it forces the viewer to learn, to read, to become more engaged in the film beyond just like the surface level. So like, you know, this film, for example, for 2006 middle schooler, it made me look into like, huh? Like, let me look into the Spanish, you know, civil war. And right. like, it was a real event. Like, you know, it was something that like little young me who loved to read and like loved to, this is before the internet. So, or at least, okay. <laughs> okay. The internet was there, but 2006. Before the ease of the internet. Right. Yeah, right. Before you the ease of Dial up. <laughs> you just had to go to your local library. You had to, yeah. you know, uh, uh, gosh, what the, the Dewey decimal system. You had to, <laughs> you had oh to, goodness. Yeah. You had to look. You or had ask to, the librarian. Cause no way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had to actually do the research. And if you wanted yep. to know more, you had to be just, you just had to be more informed, like on your own, you had to seek it out. And, you know, films like this are like totally up my alley that have just such a great balance of like horror history, like our films that are just, mm, that are like the films that I just love, like, like some of the stuff I I like to write about are those films or are those media projects that are doing that kind of thing that are either talking about horror history or talking about social issues or talking about politics or policy or whatever that are kind of, you know, nudging people on the shoulder or tapping them on the shoulder, like, Hey, you know, real world thing. Like, (laughs) yeah. It's a thing that not every viewer gravitates towards. And I'm not, you know, I understand that it's not always the mood that somebody's going to be in is necessarily always wanting to have that. But I think it's undeniably there in any piece of storytelling that is in existence, even if the intentions were not there. The fact of the matter is a voice created it. That voice has a history and that history is linked to a cultural history and all of these things influence each other. And the more you dig, the more you find, the more you understand where this viewpoint comes from. And I think that is a wonderful practice and a very enriching practice to do as well, because you learn a lot about yourself as you learn about other people. I find at least when, when I do this, mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I'm very I'm right there with you with that. That's uh, definitely one of my kind of brands as well is the films that try to teach you a bit more about the world through the process of either entertainment if you find it fully entertaining or just 
the experience that they take you on. I um I actually am going to do an update to my Tigers Are Not Afraid piece that I um did, I think it was last year, maybe a year and a half ago um, after seeing the film. Um, I've got it written. It's actually called uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid, um, Exploring Magic as Survival. And I think this is a great point about, um, you know, what Del Toro, you know, films do or other films that, you know, have a child or a teenager and they're usually not an adult yet, usually um, in these type of, you know, this type of film canon. But I think what's powerful about these films is exploring magic as survival, literally just kind of as it says, like that this film, The Devil's Backbone, that because children, you know, are, I don't want, I'm not going to say ill-equipped, that's not even the correct word, that so often adults are just prone to violence or to try Mm -hmm. to come at a situation with a just push it down, knock it over mindset. They're not willing to try something else like finding another way to go about resolving conflict or some kind of resolution. Like, so for example, younger me, like totally on board with the whole concept and premise of like Steven universe. If you've ever watched it before, (laughs) like Steven universe is like that kind of show. Um, Craig of the Creek, like on Cartoon Network, is that kind of show. Like I'm I'm totally here for like shows where like kids have power and agency, like in their own way, like in their own unique ways and their own, you know, type of heroism, their own type of um, self-actualization. And, you know, it's powerful to see pieces of media. Um, I, I love films where kids are the focus or where children they try to explore the nuances and intricacies of like childhood or just because the perspective is so different. And, you know, a lot of times isn't so heavy, like an adult, you know, isn't, isn't so burdened with, you know, I guess maybe either adult issues or an adult framing or something like that. Why, you know, Pan's Labyrinth is such a beautiful film because it, you know, operates from that perspective. of Ophelia, but at the same time, I can't even remember. I can't remember what this film is rated. Is it rated R or is it rated PG? Yeah, it okay. was rated R. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, at the same time, I like, would hope so. Yeah, like there are <laughs> elements in this film, like that because it's a war film, that Guillermo del Toro also like has to go there. Um, and I would say even right. like um, the film Tigers Are Not Afraid, the same thing. Like it's a war film. Like there is trauma in it. There is horror in it. There's blood in it. Like there is, you know, violence in it, you know. Um, and depending on who that violence is directed towards, it's it's escalated and ratcheted up even further. So, you know, just the fact that that's a, a thing that exists, you know. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I would love to see Del Toro try to tackle something more aimed at a younger audience. Uh, I know he did what? Not troll. It was troll. Wasn't troll hunter? Was it? No. No. Um, no, that was something else. That was the found footage film. Um, um I know he's- he he produced a, a, a children's series, I believe, for Netflix, but. 
Film-wise, I think the Hellboy movies come the closest to that, and they do explore very similar things. I mean, you do have Hellboy as a played by a 30-plus-year-old man, but the whole point is he's a character who, being a timeless, ethereal being, is so infantile in his time being alive Mm -hmm. that he's still exploring things the same way uh, you know, an adolescent would be exploring things. His emotions are out of hand and he's experiencing love for the first time, but love and loss and all the things that adults have to go through. But in his mind, he's kind of dealing with it as a very large child. And I love that the movie shows the whimsy in all of this as well, because he is such a innocent, untouched creature that just tries to see the good in things and he likes kittens, which is also a very <laughs> a nice touch to make him more childlike as well. Like he will go out of his way to stop his process because hold up, the, the kittens are in a box. I'm going to go <laughs> adopt these kittens real quick. It's exactly what a kid would do. Mm-hmm. You know, hold on, mama, there's a stray. Hold on, get stop the car. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but you, know, you mentioned it. It he doesn't ever lose the the whimsical or the majestic in films like Pan's Labyrinth, but. I will say that it would be an interesting thing to see how he would communicate to a younger audience the same sorts of values and lessons that he's trying to explore with adults about themselves when they were children. Because that's what these movies feel like to me is more of an exploration of don't lose that part of yourself that believed everything. Mm -hmm. Because the more you believe, the more you'll accept, you know? And I think that's inescapable, like you said, um, because he is the age that he is and trying to write the story with, you know, a particular framing device or framed character, you know, vehicle driven narrative from this perspective. But you're right that, you know, I guess until a actual child is put in the director's chair, <laughs> um, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, something akin to, I don't know, like children's programming, like Sesame Street, right? That has chil- like children's input actually into the creative process to see, you know, things from children they do like, they don't like. That's like, like that doesn't make sense or like, or, and I honestly would say, not that a child will say that doesn't make sense, but like, I would say that a child would explain to an adult why that makes sense why that non yeah. that fantastical element makes sense. I'm like, oh no, that's that's fine. Because of the you know, the ubiquity of the internet now, children are in a different type of maturity phase process yes. ability than than we were. Like there was like so many different things that we were just like oblivious to, naive to so on and so forth because we didn't have access to so much content from so many different sources, like 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Like it just wasn't there. It just, I mean, look at this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) this is even possible. Like I'm talking to you from like thousands of miles away. Yeah. Shouldn't, shouldn't be possible, but it is. So I'm happy it is, though. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. At that time, it, everything was mediated. You had to be a professional. You had to have money for equipment and a studio that produced your things. And um, 
if the news didn't say it, was it really true? We had those yeah. conversations all the time. And, you know, when nine 11 hit, it was really, uh, a lot of the behavior we have nowadays are people who are still traumatized from nine 11. They're just questioning everything because with us getting media from everyone, that means you're getting media from a lot of dishonest people as well, who just picked up a camera and did a thing. And that does mature kids pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I'm amazed when I talk to five year olds these days, and I think of like, what the? I was like, I was just like this little Christian boy trying to punch the devil in the face because I liked Power Rangers <laughs> oh, at the age yes, of five. Yes. You know, like I was just <laughs> yes. going to church, going swoosh, swoosh, swoosh. You know, that's yeah, all I was yeah. doing. <laughs> and these kids are saying, yeah, uh, people were mean to each other the other day, but it's okay. And I'm like, what kid? That's some like that's some wisdom bombs basically yeah. already. Of like life goes on, but I'm very sad for them. Yeah, and I didn't even know that bad things were happening at the age of five. Like our philosophies were were definitely warped in some different ways when we were children because of the pre 9-11 world that we lived in. Yeah. That we're like, yeah, blow it up, punch it. Like we had a different frame of reference about like how to handle problems for sure. Like how to handle like. Yes. I, I don't I mean, it's a blessing. I guess in disguise that we were children then. So we weren't fully formed yet as as adults as we are now. But I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. Like you said, like there's a pre nine 11 world and this post nine 11 world. And we are that generation that's in that weird in between where we were Mm -hmm. like straddling all of the quote unquote good stuff. Like, not that our childhoods were perfect. It's like pleasant stuff. That's yeah. my, my, I guess, you know, the yeah. pleasantries of life. Yeah. That we, that we had that as reference versus this, like thinking about the fact yeah. Devil's Backbone was in 2001. Pan's Labyrinth was 2006. It was about a week before uh, it happened. He said, he said that the movie came out. He was over the moon. He was like, I did it. I made it. This is the one. This is the movie that's made me. Everybody understands me. I'm a badass. I'm so good. The plane hit. And he said, the world doesn't have any meaning anymore. Mm. That was what he said in the interview. He just like, who cares? He really didn't care anymore that the movie was successful. Mm. He just, yeah. And that's what happened to a lot of us. So, you know, we were also at an impressionable age where we thought, oh, American dream. We're going to go out there and do what we can. And then we realized that there was a world around us and not everybody saw things the same way we did. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing that, you know, like he said, like one thing that hits differently in this film, you know, uh, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth are these films about children who see like that the natural of order, th- natural order of things that adults have set up is like, is violent, is, is yeah. sexist, is transphobic, is homophobic, is like all of these different like violent things and children just like no that's not the world i want that's not the world i want but like you know like we want nothing normative yeah yeah <laughs> that like both of these that the children in 2001 and children in 2006 and like probably any kind of child's media you're gonna find they're like no i want to be friends with everyone like no i don't want to like punch anyone in the face like i don't want to shoot anyone i don't want to kill anyone i don't want to harm anyone like i just want like Go on adventures and like hang out with the fun, you know what I mean? Or like, yeah, hang out with hang out with the ghost friend, you know? Like, it's it's powerful to like come back to pieces of media like this and like be like, okay, that's right. Like, 
I was a child once. Like, let me go back to that energy for a minute. You know what I mean? Let me go back to that mindset for an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. It's quite refreshing too. Uh, I loved how you pinpointed like all the, the desires that you have as a child. And I think what it kind of boils down to, which yet again, might actually hearken into uh, that kind of that part of it that we can't really formulate. Like, what is it? I think one thing is that with children, at the core of everything that we want is we want to have meaningful relationships with things. I, you know, we had pet rocks growing up. <laughs> this is my rock. Yeah. And I, I guarantee you, I would get very emotional if somebody threw that rock and skipped it on water because that was my pet rock. I polished it. I chose it because of its color. And not just because, oh, this rock is nice. Like if you ever did anything like that, that you had a particular shadow that you liked or a tree or whatever, it's because you contemplated and you connected with it. And friendships were the same. Although childhood friendships are very fickle. Uh, I do think for the time that they last, they're very strong and they're very real. Kids are just fickle and they get bored and they move on to something else. And it's painful when they break apart. But I don't think it means that you never had a connection to begin with. That's something that we learn. Adults are far more prone to that, though. They're far more prone to, oh, no, our friendship had a reason. Mm, You know? Oh, gosh, that's powerful. That's powerful stuff right there. And uh, it's just something that, I don't know, like, even though these films have so much horror in them, like I mentioned, like, uh, maybe 30 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, that... um, (laughs) There's just like this beautiful way that Del Toro just is able to just have this balance in his films that, you know, like he said, with the horror, with the, with the childhood elements, with children trying to push their light into like the darkest, you know, corners. And even sometimes trying to save people along the way, um, like in both films, it's interesting that before the children arrived, everyone's lives were like horrible, miserable, were, you know, full of like less color in life. But in, you know, the devil's backbone, when the children arrive, like just their presence, their energy, their, their youth, like perks everyone up, you know? Um, yeah. And even like in Pan's Labyrinth, um, uh, you know, Mercedes and Carmen, for example, especially Carmen, who, literally takes on this like second maternal role to Ophelia um, that like before she arrived, obviously she was just living like, you know, constantly like in fear that like, I'm going to be found out. Like my brother is like potentially going to die. Like I could potentially die because there's a war going on, but you know, this child shows up and so many of her kind of walls are, you know, just kind of come down because like this child like needs her. She wants to be needed yeah. like for this child. So like, Oh, that's the power of children. Yeah. And it, it, she's also a little cheekier anyway. You see her with the other cooks and the maids and stuff mm-hmm. and the way they gossip about Vidal. And mm-hmm. she's the one who's usually quietly doing her things, but you see it in her eye that she's probably started the conversation at some point, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little troublemaker. So if you have this child who's just doing everything that Vidal doesn't want her to do, I can imagine that she's like, thank you. Thank you for bringing this child into my life so that although I'm still afraid of all of these very serious and adult situations that I'm in, she can live vicariously through the 
the might and wonder of this child's imagination and discovering things again. I think that's also wonderful. If you understand stuff and you learn how to rediscover them, oh, what a what a feeling. Yeah. And it was actually powerful to have the kind of reflective element that like not saying that they were the same in a literal sense, but like as far as a kind of visual metaphor that like if Ophelia had lived, that potentially she could have become a Carmen-like figure. So at the end of the film, we we discover that actually Carmen has been like pulling the strings all along, that she has been, quote unquote, the spy. She's been the person who's been helping out the troops to actually like take down Captain Vidal the whole time. Like it's like mm-hmm. in a, this amazing story within a story within a story that like, you know, it kind of makes you curious, like, well, who is Carmen? You know, like where did where did she come from? Like, what kind of childhood did she have that she was able to? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, that she was able to survive all of this. That like maybe she had a fairy tale experience that like saved her and made her this amazing woman that she is. And so at the end of the film, we see that you know Carmen was trying so hard, you know, to fight so many different battles, and it's sad that she wasn't able to save Ophelia but Ophelia wanted to be brave and fight her own battle. So it's just like this, this film is just operating on so many different levels as far as everything. Like this film is just, I, I just watch it. Just watch it. People. Yeah. (laughs) If you haven't do yourself the favor and watch it. Uh, But before we round off on this, uh, we mentioned it earlier and we didn't actually get to it. And I think that a lot of people would just find us just, just so bad at this. Mm-hmm. If we didn't talk a little bit about the pale man <gasps> for just a moment. Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's bring that horror in, shall we? Mm-hmm. Uh, the pale man is a creature of many people's nightmares, uh, myself included. Uh, when I first saw the pale man, that just changed the whole film for me. Mm-hmm. That's why for me, like when there's a debate among some because of the fairy tale elements, like, is this really a horror film? It's like, you got the fucking pale man. In it. it is a horror film. It is <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I don't care that it's like, it's not like a fantasy film that has a horror element in it. The sheer existence of this thing yeah. being in this world tells you what kind of world you're dealing with. And I'm way more frightened with the prospect of what Ophelia has to rule over mm-hmm. because the pale man is considered a pretty normal thing in their reality. I mean, I, they don't like him from the way you can tell from the mythology, but he doesn't seem very singular. Mm. And that disturbs the hell out of me. Yeah. That, that, so I, I, I would love, could you give a little explanation as uh, to what the pale man is? Okay. So the pale man is an entity that's operating on so many different horror slash fairy tale levels that, that he is the enforcer of the rules. That if you break them, if you break them, <laughs> yes. if you break said rules, you can just kiss your life goodbye. Like the murals will tell you on the walls that like don't touch. It's like it's you know speaking of childhood, it's like um like the panther in the desert in um in Aladdin, right? That you know mm-hmm. only touch the one object, touch nothing else. Don't look at anything else. Get the one object and leave. Like, oh, I didn't even think about that, but that is such a perfect comparison. Yes. Yeah, like that. This that said X Y Z item is not for you. Get the, get the <laughs> magic trinket and leave. Like, there's so many 
horror story or horror fairy tales that are operating at that level where mm-hmm. children have to survive some enchanted place or let's say for example um uh uh Hansel and Gretel for example the fairy tale mm-hmm. where they're starving they need help suddenly a magical place appears that's just made out of food <laughs> you know and all their favorite food too right and the horror element is you know is there so we know that story like you know this is operating in like i even thought of like upon re-wa- rewatch i thought of like a if you've ever seen Return to Oz from the 1980s. by it's been a while. Yeah, from the 1980s, how we have um, Princess Mombi, who seems to be this kind figure, or like the fact that she's supposed to go to this place and get a magical item or whatever, and is right. sidetracked on the quest. And we find out that like Princess Mombi's not all that she appears, that she, like the Pale Man, is this horror creature you know, from like our deepest like <laughs> imaginations. Um, but you know, the fact that the pale man is this, he's a, he's a dichotomous kind of figure, right? That he is yes. a entity that is so thin and skinny that actually his flesh is hanging off of just his bones at the same time. Yeah. But the fact that he's a entity that devours you know, persons that don't adhere to the rules or pass the test in the correct way. It's very interesting that they decided to go with an inverted element of the horror being this, well, I don't want to say sightless, but like, you know, the eyes not being in the traditional place that you think they are, that the, that the body. He's very skewed vision. Mm-hmm. I might, I guess it is a good way to put it. Yeah. Cause he's never looking in a very, straightforward way mm-hmm. you know he has to he's very singularly visioned right and it's one of those elements it's like a 50 50 like has the pale man always existed or is, or is he a creature that was like damned to this place like to be the pale man for like all time it's kind of one of those right. things like when you really kind of maybe even get into the lore if you were to i don't know just be talking about it laissez-faire there's just so so much with each creature and especially like with the pale man, the fact that it's one of these gorgeous horror set pieces that just kind of lets your imagination like run wild about like, well, why is this thing here? <laughs> and right. <laughs> There's no doors or anything either. He's just in this locked up, bricked up room. Yeah. That is the most gorgeous room you've ever seen. Yeah. Sitting there. The, the the question of why is a very good question to ask. Yeah. And it makes you think because she's able to go in and out of this place that maybe it's a part of some place even bigger. That like obviously the mm-hmm. fawn comes from a different world. That the pale man is in this other plane of reality and existence. So it just makes you think that there's this much larger fairy tale world that we're only getting like these little glimpses of. They were only kind of getting like a peek behind the curtain at, and then it's just like, okay, too scary. You know, like close, close, close the curtain back. <laughs> enough <out>. of that. <laughs> yeah. Like that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> like the, just enough of it. Yeah. Like the genuine moment that it's wild. I was more afraid for Ophelia with the pale man than I was with Captain Vidal because I knew like we were just aware of like the loose cannon that Captain Vidal was, but like something about having a child chased by a monster. I don't know what it is. It just, kind of flip some kind of primordial switch like in our brains that like yeah they might not make it 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you also feel that after the Pale Man scene, Vidal became much more terrifying to you in in relation to Ophelia? Because for me, it is kind of like a foreshadowing. Up until that point, Vidal is a horrifying, murderous individual, but he's never abusive to Ophelia apart from those little things that we're used to kind of shrugging off. Eh, he's just a grumpy dude who doesn't like girls. And he just ignores her, basically. But it is funny how throughout all of this, you, you see the depravity that he shows to other people. And we never once think, well, he's going to do this to this young girl. And then you see the, the pale man. And I think there's just something about how the pale man exists to devour children and you see all the little boots that have been there for God knows how long because they've almost like they've rotted to the point of paper. Basically, this leather is almost gone. And there's for one, he preys on children, which makes it just so ghastly and awful. Uh, his whole appearance being all saggy and thin too. I mean, there's a lot of clear uh, imagery that's being borrowed there, and some stereotypes thrown in to kind of trigger those kind of stranger danger warning responses that we might have. Um, he literally only has eyes for children because only when the children eat the food, does he actually see anything in the world around him. So he only sees his victims. And after that, I suddenly started to fear the only other figure in the film that is like him. And that's because of the film Del Toro. So you talked about the dichotomy of the pale man. The dichotomy that I also saw on a filmmaking level with this is the color palettes that he uses are quite interesting how everything's warm and cozy around the wrong people. Mm, you know, the yeah. pale man's got the banquet. It's all kind of warm browns and golden colors. And you have the same with the dinner spread with Vidal the night before. I always got a little... <laughs> maybe maybe I just never dropped that feeling, but yeah, Vidal, and he does ramp up and he does eventually turn on Ophelia, but uh, it, it, the ending becomes a little less surprising to me just because of the inclusion of the pale man. But, um, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up as far as Vidal becoming even more terrifying. I actually thought of the opposite. Because of, okay. the, because of the different things that Ophelia had already witnessed, experienced, seen, the tests that she'd undergone, you know, from the fawn, that um, even just him, you know, testing, you know, her will, testing her strength, testing, like, right. you know, is she willing to, how is she, like, what, you know, even though, like, she's afraid, how is she going to tackle that fear? Like, how is she going to you know, either keep her head in like the midst of a, of a frightening situation or like that to have that element be there. And like you said, with the pale man, I think it actually like kind of capped off a moment where Ophelia realized that like, wow, you know, like I survived that. Like maybe I can do anything. Like I, sur I survived. That's a good point. <laughs> this horrific creature that was not going to stop until it killed me and ate me. So like Captain Vidal, yep. like do your worst, like do your worst. Like, um, <laughs> so like when she, you know, did run off with her, her brother at, at film's end and she was just like, no, I'm not going to, you know, not only am I not going to give the baby to you, Captain Vidal, I'm not going to give the fawn. I'm not going to give the baby to the fawn either. The fact that she was just like over it. She's like, I'm yeah, like, I'm more powerful than I thought I was. I'm stronger than I thought I was like, like it was just amazing to see her like come into her power. I hate to, I hate 
also at the same time that it was through all of this like terrifying horror stuff. But like, <laughs> she's like, if I could survive all that, then you could. Like, Whatevs. Yeah, you can do your yeah. worst. Like, it's fine. It's kind of. Ha- it's funny that this. Uh, I'm going to make this comparison, but it's kind of like her labyrinth moment. It's mm-hmm. the whole. You have no power over me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's like, you could kill me, but that doesn't change that. I made my own decisions yeah. and I chose not to give you this baby. And, you know, Mercedes is one of those figures that teaches her that as well. Yeah. Constantly just reminding her like, Oh, when I was a little girl, I used to believe in things like fawns and stuff, but I, I grew up and I didn't believe anymore, but, but it was really nice. And just kind of reminded her, like, I, I kind of wish I did still believe in those things. Cause I felt more brave at mm-hmm. those times and, and, and empowered her and, and tried to teach her uh, to live in both worlds in the right way. And I think that, you know, Ophelia delivers by yeah. the end of this movie. Yeah. For, and it's very satisfying. Yeah. But she's, you know, in her, no, not in her own way. She is a final girl. It was, it's just amazing yeah. to see characters that from the start of the film to where they end up, you know, being the final girl or the last yeah. person to survive or, you know, whatever, um, to see them get to that point where they're just like, not even like death like scares me. So like what? Like Bring what do on. you have to like control <laughs> me with or scare me with? It reminded me like, you know, I love that you brought up the scene that you just brought up. It made me think of like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Like when Nancy like finally turned to Freddy Krueger, it's just like, you're nothing. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, you're nothing to me. Like you're like, she literally just said like, you're nothing. And you know, him seeing him just like dissolve into nothingness was just like, so powerful when she just turned around she was gonna keep running and she's like no i don't have to run you should run for <laughs> I me i don't think so <laughs> yeah like yeah. i I, oh, I love that in film but it's like you know you should be running for me <laughs> it's a trope i adore it does it really well uh, as well mm-hmm. uh, with the literal deflation of the ego mm-hmm. of pennywise as they all just start making fun of how stupid he looks and mm-hmm. They just bully him into submission, basically. Yeah. Which, you know, that's what they always teach you as a kid, too, is like, bully him back. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you have a bully. And you don't understand what they mean by that because we're just getting physical pain and feel bad, but we don't really understand that what they're really doing is preying on your insecurities and pointing them out, just like really hitting that nerve. Mm-hmm. And I mean, usually it's the smart kids that get picked on. If we had, uh, been told the right way i'm pretty sure we would have turned right back around and figured it out pretty quickly how we could shut those bullies up um and uh, i mean i did it once or twice as a kid you yeah. do you know you get a few scrapes and bruises along the way but hey Ophelia has the same situation she stands right there and stares a bully down and she does get a bullet for it but she holds on to her integrity and she at the end of the day she wins he still he disappears you know mm-hmm. he's flat out told your child will not know your name and that's it. He's dead. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ophelia will be remembered on both realms for her entire life. Well, entire life. She's, 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 you know what I mean? Both realms <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, yeah, for yeah. days to come. <laughs> At infinitum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to infinity. Um, this, this film, it's just, it's just operating on so many amazing levels. And it's just, like you said, like this film is just so timeless. This film just, it's, it's truly like one of those films I would put on my masterpiece list. Like there aren't too many yes. films that I would say I'm like from beginning to end. This is a solid piece of work, like nothing exactly wasted, so. no scenes that, you know, could been left on the cutting room floor. Like 
beginning to end middle, you know, side characters, other characters that were introduced to work and work so well to just build this story and like give this, this world so much like life and meaning. And the fact that, you know, it came from the precursor of the devil's backbone and the way he was able to carry so many of those elements over into this film is why I wanted to just highlight it as a double feature. Like, like what else can I say? Like masterpiece. Totally agree with that. And I thank you for bringing up both of these movies together. Cause I do feel that spiritually they do show not just similar themes or beats. They are a, a great illustration of development and of just expansion, basically. Uh, one expands upon the other, but they also complement each other. It's a very symbiotic relationship between the two films. So thank you very much for bringing them uh, up. Uh, we've gone a bit long now, so I, I could <laughs> I could go on forever, really talking yeah, about like yeah. sometimes you like when I talk about this movie, I could <laughs> easily forget that I was doing a podcast and just have a wonderful conversation about it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think we've given it a good time for two films, and uh, so. There are other elements, of course, we could talk about that maybe we can bring you back one day and talk either about another film or just keep going with this one. Because, yeah. you know, there's, al- there's also music and, you know, the way – well, we talked a little bit about the colors, but there's also so much yes. to unpack with his color palettes and stuff. But for now, we're going to wrap up. So let's go through all of uh, – the final plugs real quick. So this podcast is a part of the anatomy of a scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the anatomy of a scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi academic and fun podcasts, including bodies of horror hosted by Nicole Goble, the scream teens hosted by gory, Corey and Lena and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. And if you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. I want to thank Danny again for bringing these wonderful films to the table. Uh, where can the people find you, and is there anything in particular that you would like to plug? Uh, make sure to... Uh... Follow me on Twitter at the Danny Bethay, T-H-E-D-A-N-I-B-E-T-H-E-A. Um, you can also find um, not all of my work because I have bylines like all over the internet. So, but a good place for my work is housed. Um, you can find me on Twitter and or you can find me um, on my Medium page, D-A-N-I-B-E-T-H-E-A, uh, medium.com. Um, you can just it's wild. I'm at that place now where I'm sure you're the same Chandler. Like you could just Google your name and you just like show up on the internet. <laughs> so you can literally kind of just Google my name and uh, Danny Bethay and like horror and you'll be like amazed like what, what comes up because I've done, you know, writing podcasts and um, panel events. And so I've got a lot of stuff out there for you to uh, chew on. Um, I guess uh, if I want to plug anything, be sure to check out We Are Horror Magazine, where Chandler has written for us before. Um, We're so delighted to have his contribution. Um, So be sure to check out We Are Horror Magazine. We are about to debut the Undead issue. It'll be our fifth issue. So 
be sure to check out that, our magazine. And we also have a Patreon. We have all kinds of really cool stuff written by some amazing people there as well. So a lot of people that we can't fit into the magazine, we like to highlight them on our Patreon. Um, pitch to us anytime. Uh, at, not, not anytime, but uh, We Are Heart magazine. We try to even just even sometimes take random pitches um, in the midst of us making the magazine. So, you know, if you have time, pitch to us and we may consider featuring your piece. And I guess that's all I really want to plug. Um, I, I write for so many different people. So if you can, if you're on Twitter, follow the different places that I write for and go from there. Do it. You know, if uh, Danny's attached to it, then it's got some quality on there at the very least. Uh, I, I can say that, you know, I've had a, a wonderful time working with you on pieces. And on top of that, I'm just a big fan of your work. So uh, extra plug there. Check out Danny's work and support anybody who supports Danny because that's uh, a good thing you can do. And also thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horror. Goodbye. Goodbye.